0: Good morning. It's a joy to be with you again, and I just want to emphasize uh, what our brother Danny announced at the beginning of the service tonight. Uh, we're meeting back here at 5 p.m. This is relatively new for us as a church. Uh, we used to do this, but stopped for a little over two years when the pandemic hit. Well, this is the second time we're coming back for an evening service, and this is not just a repeat of the morning service. But this is a time for members to pray. Uh, for the needs of the church, for uh, evangelistic prayer requests, and hear about what's going on in the lives of the church. It's really a unique time. Uh, It's more casual, and uh, there's also going to be food afterwards for free. Uh, So free food, perhaps the most common and best Baptist advertisement for a gathering of all time, Uh, but it's going to be a good time. I'd encourage you to come. Uh, Members are the ones who pray, but all are welcome, and uh, I think you'll that it's an encouraging time. So you are welcome to come back at 5 p.m. for that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, which you can find on page 838 of the Bibles provided. And uh, I've said this a number of times as we've been going through Mark, but if you don't have a Bible at home for you to read, feel free to take one of the black ones under the chairs. Uh, We believe that God has spoken to us, by His Word, that it's inspired by His Holy Spirit, uh, and that it is sufficient for our lives. So we would love for you to have a copy that you could read at home on your own. Have you ever thought about what it would be like if Jesus were to come to the world today and minister? I don't know about you, but I certainly have a number of friends who think that their opinions of Jesus would change. If they were able to see him for themselves, if they were able to see or hear his teaching. Uh, I even had a friend one time tell me that if, if he only made it clear, like he just wrote a sign in the sky, then maybe I would believe in him. And uh, I just thought, he has written a sign to you, but it's not in the sky, it's in these pages. <laughs> so, friends, uh, I would like to direct you to Mark chapter 3. And make the argument that we have all the information we need to know and to trust Jesus. Uh, This is the earliest record of Jesus' life, of the four accounts, of the four Gospels. It was likely written within 20 years of Jesus' life and ministry. uh, Which means that this document would have been falsifiable. It means that there would have been people still alive in the time of giving it to the audience who may have witnessed Jesus, who may have had relatives uh, who were with Jesus or were healed by Jesus even. It's written by Mark, who is a disciple of the Apostle Peter, who spent much time with Jesus. It's also the shortest gospel account with only 16 chapters. So far, we've only made it to chapter 3. But we're plugging away, and even though we're just at the beginning of the gospel... Jesus has already created quite a stir. So just earlier in the chapter, Jesus was surrounded by so many that it became dangerous for him. So many people were pressing in in order to be healed that Jesus even asked for his disciples to prepare a boat so that he could get away from the crowd and uh, be safe. Jesus then retreats to a mountain where he selects 12 disciples which we know as the twelve disciples or the twelve apostles, indicating a creation of a new people, a new Israel. Well, our story today picks up right where we left off. Jesus coming down from the mountain, and we get a glimpse of three different perspectives or views about who Jesus is by the people around him. Those three perspectives are going to be three points my argument again today is that everyone must make a decision about what they think of who Jesus is. And I hope studying this passage will help bring clarity on that issue for you. Mark recorded this account of Jesus' life in order to encourage the church in Rome, as well as to tell others who had not heard about the life of Jesus, about the good news that he brings. So whatever you think of Jesus there's no better place to learn from than the Gospel of Mark. So let's begin by reading the first few verses. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So the first perspective we see is that Jesus is deranged. And this is the perspective not just held by the naysayers. We would probably expect it from his opponents, like, say, the Pharisees, uh, who openly oppose him and and question him and accuse him. But instead, what we see is Jesus' own family members were concerned about him. He's out of his mind, is what they were saying. And to their credit, I think you might think this too, if one of your family members suddenly started telling people that they were the Messiah that the prophets spoke about, the one that their parents taught them about when they were growing up. You know, just imagine if you, have a, if you have a sibling and they came out and said, hey, you remember what the prophet Isaiah talked about, the chosen servant of God, the Messiah, who will sit on David's throne forever? Guess what? It's me. The Bible is about me. In fact... I am God's son, and he has given me power, and you have to obey me. Well, Jesus himself would say later in chapter 6 that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. I heard a preacher one time say that God often calls people into ministry. The problem is he never says it loud enough for the rest of the family to hear. Well, the point here is that you would think that of all people who would trust him and believe the things he would have to say, you would think it'd be the people who knew him best, his family members. But it appears they're concerned more about his sanity. And perhaps we could even say for good reason. Some of the things that Jesus has said so far and done are not those of the typical rabbi. He has traveled around, preached things like the The gospel, or the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Or, son, your sins are forgiven, something that only God could do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not only that, but he would call people to follow him rather than the norm, which was uh, that students would request to follow a rabbi and then they would accept. He's called people that you wouldn't accept, like tax collectors, and they followed him. In doing these things, Jesus attracted enormous crowds of people seeking healing, and perhaps the crowds themselves were the final straw for the family members. Uh, They must have thought things were just getting way out of hand. We've talked already about how the, the crowds became a hindrance. They were dangerous. And in Mark's gospel, they're often presented that way as a, as a hindrance for others who are trying to get to Jesus or a hindrance to his own ministry even. That's what we see in our texts here as well. There were so many people, they didn't even have room to eat in the house. Jesus had already been gone all day teaching and healing, and these people won't leave him alone. So whoever's house it was they were in, we don't really know, but it was jam-packed and his family couldn't even get to him. To eat a simple meal. All this leads to them thinking that Jesus has lost his mind. Which I think if we're totally honest with ourselves, this is actually a pretty viable option of a view of someone like Jesus, isn't it? It doesn't take into account that people were actually witnessing miracles he was doing, but I would say that it's a more honest opinion that than what most people have of Jesus today. Islam and Mormonism, for example, teach that Jesus was a prophet, uh, but not the Son of God. Which is confusing because he specifically contradicts some of their doctrines. Most people who don't ascribe to religion, uh, if you ask them what they thought about Jesus, they would probably say that he was a good moral teacher. They liked some of the things he said. Um, but they would say he's probably just one of, one of many other religious teachers. They like some of the things He said, like treating others the way that you want to be treated. But that's only part of what Jesus said about Himself. His family members, I think, knew a little bit better than that. He didn't just say to treat others fairly. He also said that He was the bridegroom of Israel, which is a title reserved for Yahweh in the Old Testament. You can't just be a wonderful teacher of peace and love if you say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life... And no one comes to the Father except through me. He said things like, Before Abraham was, I am. Over and over again throughout the Gospels, if you read them, you'll see that Jesus didn't just teach good morals. He taught about himself. He taught about heaven and hell. Even in today's passage, he'll make judgments about eternal punishment. So if you're not sold on the truth of Jesus' claims, there aren't a lot of options. Uh, I don't think... A completely sane person could claim the things that Jesus claims if they aren't true. And I think that's true of other cult followers, or, or founders rather, who made similar claims about themselves. I think that they're likely either insane, or just really wicked to take advantage of people, and greedy. So friends, Jesus is, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then what we do here each week is a waste. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? If Jesus did not get up from the grave, we are to be pitied. So I'm telling you as the pastor, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then the whole thing crumbles to the ground. But Christianity begins and ends with Jesus. Now obviously, I don't think Jesus was deranged like Jesus' family did, or else I wouldn't be up here. And... And I just want to point out here that if you're here today and you think that Jesus is deranged, or you know people who think that Jesus might have been deranged, or maybe not fully all there, allow me to give you a little bit of foreshadowing about what would become of his family. Right now, they don't understand what he's doing, and they're on the outside of his followers rather than the inside. They don't believe in him. But eventually, after his death and resurrection, Luke records them praying with the twelve apostles. In Acts 1, verse 14, right after they replaced Judas, who betrayed Jesus among the twelve, it says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Two of his brothers, James and Jude, you may be familiar with, because they would eventually write two books in the New Testament. So what can we learn about this for ourselves? Well, you can change your mind about Jesus. If his own family members could believe that he was crazy and then be convinced to believe in him, then you can too. Just think about how, how much would have to happen for you to be convinced that one of your own family members was the Son of God. Well, his family members probably thought they knew Jesus pretty well And they probably spent more time with Jesus than anyone else. Even still, they had more to learn. So friends, if Jesus is the Son of God, we're we're never going to stop learning about who He is. So when you read the Bible, ask the Spirit to reveal new things to you and expect to learn. I hope this encourages you in your evangelism as well. Uh, If you have unbelieving friends or family, continue to share the Gospel with them. Offer fresh insights Because you never know uh, which conversation the Lord will use to change their hearts. could be the very next one that you have. Much of the world still thinks that Jesus and Christianity is uh, crazy. And if you're thought of this way by family members or perhaps at your job, you might be tempted to question whether or not this whole thing is worth your time or whether or not you're doing the right thing. You might feel foolish, even, for believing in Jesus. But if that's the case, you're in good company. Because some thought Jesus was deranged, who were with him, who were related to him. That may not mean you're doing anything wrong. In fact, you're probably doing things right, if other people think that about you, for following Jesus. Well, that's just one view that we see of Jesus in this passage. The next view of Jesus is that he is demon-possessed. So first, some think he's deranged. Next, we'll find some, some think he's demon-possessed. That's the position held by the scribes. Look down with me at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Well, Mark tells us that scribes come down from Jerusalem, and remember that scribes were the religious authorities of the day. Their job was to teach scripture and read it publicly in the synagogues. There's already been some local confrontation between the scribes and Capernaum, uh, but this is not the same group as in that time. This group in particular, uh, these are the big dogs. These are the head honchos from the capital city, Jerusalem. These would be like the national authorities on matters of religion. And they, too, come to see what's going on. And they have an opinion about Jesus, prepared to propagate to others around. And that opinion is that he is demon-possessed. They didn't just think this privately to themselves, because our text says that they were saying this to other people. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And uh, you may wonder what that means. It's not a common title. Uh, It's Beelzebul or sometimes Beelzebub, depending on what translation you're using. But it likely means something like Lord of the house or Lord of the Baals. If you remember the idol from the Old Testament, Baal or Baal. In this case, the scribes use it synonymously with the prince of demons, referring to Satan himself. And that's clear in the way that Jesus responds to their accusations. So what they're saying about Jesus is no, no small charge. Just think about this for a moment. The scribes whose occupation full time is to teach people the truth about God are saying about the very Son of God in front of them that he is possessed by Satan. That the things he is doing are not actually the works of God but are the works of the devil. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could come up with perhaps a more uh, offensive or more intense critique of someone's ministry. The Lord of the universe is right in front of them. And what are they telling people? Don't listen to this guy. He's possessed. And just a small linguistic note uh, in, in the original manuscripts here, where it says they were saying... That verb is what's called an imperfect, implying continuous or ongoing action. So it's not like they were just, they said it once. They were saying, implies that this was an ongoing campaign of theirs against Jesus in order to vilify him to the people. They're calling his source of power evil rather than good. There's something really important to notice about this before we move on to Jesus' response to their accusation. Notice, there's just no question in their minds about whether or not Jesus is actually doing these things. The question is not, does Jesus have miraculous power to cast out demons and heal diseases? Rather, the question is, where is this amazing power coming from? What's the source of it? They couldn't argue with the size of the crowd or the diversity of the people. Uh, we, we learned... Last week, that they were coming from all over different regions, even non-Jewish areas. To deny those things would be foolish of them. So they needed to come up with a reason to convince people why they shouldn't listen or shouldn't follow Jesus. So they were lying about His power. Even Jesus' biggest opponents recognized His power and miracles. They don't deny that He's cast out demons. They don't deny that He's healed a paralytic or a withered hand or a fever or that he's cleansed leprosy. Critics during Jesus' day didn't have the luxury of simply saying he doesn't exist because he was there. There were real real crowds following him. That was undeniable. The thing that's baffled secular historians ever since Christianity grew was how it grew despite religious opposition. And persecution. Well, why, why would people go to their death believing something if it was made up, for example? Well, the answer is because miracles were taking place and people experienced it for themselves in the power of Jesus. The second view that Jesus is demon-possessed, it seems reasonable to us at First, But I think when you see the way that Jesus responds to it, you'll see some holes in their logic. He responds by giving them two parables. Uh, Look with me at verse 23 and following. It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus basically calls them out uh, and says that this, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. He says, if you were right and I was possessed by Satan, why in the world would I be casting out demons of other people? Why would I set my own captives free? Because if Jesus was really doing Satan's work, he would be putting demons inside of people and not casting them out. To cast them out goes directly against Satan's prerogative. Not to mention, why in the world would he give credit to God for doing these things? We don't know what people's responses were to the scribes when they were telling people that he was demon-possessed. But just following their logic for a moment reveals how shallow the argument is. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. This is logic that's true in just about any situation you can think of. A company divided uh, among itself is not going to be successful. Uh, A a church that's divided among itself will not last. A marriage that's divided will not stand. Jesus engages in spiritual warfare by casting out demons and facing Satan in the wilderness in chapter 1. War is a good image to compare this to as well. Just imagine uh, the war in Russia. Russia comes to a city in Ukraine, and imagine half of the army turning to the other half of the army and attacking. The war would last a day if that were to happen. Well, that's exactly what the scribes say of Jesus and his ministry, that he's conquering evil with evil. We should not be afraid to call out, bad logic like this when it comes against Christianity. Uh, Jesus didn't go looking for fights. He didn't go directly to Jerusalem. They came to him. Um, so we shouldn't be antagonistic either. But we should be ready to provide a defense for the Christian faith. I also want to just point out how calm Jesus seems to be uh, after they slander him in, in such an intense way by saying he's possessed by Satan. Uh, rather than you know, getting angry and worked up, Like I probably would. Uh, He just says, how can a kingdom that's divided stand? He offers parables instead. Well, let's move on to the second parable in verse 27. Jesus says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So now we have an image of a house with a strong man, perhaps armed, watching the house. And no advance can be made against the house unless the strong man is tied up first. You have to do something about him or else you're not going to succeed. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that in coming to the world, first off, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom that he brings, the kingdom of God. Second, he's saying that he is actually bound Satan and is plundering him. He binds the strong man in the house of this world and has already shown his power over demons. But through these parables, he shows that no matter what he does, no matter what Satan does, he can't stop Jesus because he's bound. By casting out demons, Jesus is setting people free from their grip. Jesus is plundering by setting captives free, just like Israel was freed from Egypt This isn't the first time that Scripture uses this kind of language, by the way. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 24 and 25 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. We also know from our own experience that we were once captive to our sin. Ephesians 2 is perhaps the clearest about this. Starting in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's our sin that separates us from God ever since Adam and Eve, and, and Eve sinned in the garden. Jesus came to make a way for us and to mend that relationship with God. How is he free captive? As a ransom for many. That's what he says in chapter 10. Verse 45 of Mark's Gospel. That he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus upheld the law perfectly so that his death acted as a sacrifice on our behalf, so that those who trust in him would be credited his righteousness and be forgiven of sins. Three days later, he got up from the grave, defeating sin and death. And with his resurrection, we have the hope, and the confidence that we will rise with him in glory instead of being punished for our sins this is how jesus plunders the strong man's house brothers and sisters we worship a savior who has power over evil spirits you know when you read through mark it seems like exorcism is just happening all the time and demon possession it's it's not the norm to us, and we think that this is just normal back then, it wasn't normal back then either. Uh, That's why they're seen as wondrous acts and miracles, because it was out of the ordinary. We should expect, though, when Jesus walked the earth, that there was an unusual amount of spiritual opposition to him. And we should make sure that our own information about demons and spirits is not informed by the world. Uh, There are all kinds of movies and presentations by the culture that make us think certain things about uh, demons and what they can do and possession and all, all the like. But be influenced by what Scripture says about it, not what culture says. Be confident not in yourself, but in the power of Jesus, who alone binds Satan. And we should not be surprised if we do encounter some kind of Opposition when we follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus' family, the scribes, the inconveniences of the crowds, they're all different kinds of opposition. So we should be prepared to follow obstacles in our life as we follow Christ as well. Let's move on in our passage this morning. These next few verses have caused a lot of confusion and fear by just about everyone who's read them. So, we should be humble and careful to understand what they mean. Look, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. One author who uh, specializes in counseling, he's written many books on counseling and has counseled people for decades, said that this passage could deliver more guilt than any passage in all of scripture. Perhaps this passage has made you wonder if this is something that you have ever done. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Is it possible that there is a sin that someone can commit that even God won't forgive? Is there a possibility that something's so wrong that even the sacrifice of Jesus can't cover it? Can Christians do this? This passage is a reminder that Jesus says really difficult things. Not everything he says is easy, and we should be careful to jump to conclusions too quickly. You'll notice i following my notes very carefully here. Uh, this text has given me a really hard time this week, uh, because it's a sobering reminder that there is a category of people who will not receive forgiveness from God. That part seems clear. Why they won't be forgiven is not as obvious. But here's what I want to communicate to you this morning. If you are at all concerned about whether or not you might have committed, then it's almost certain that you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you my definition, and then I'll explain how I came to my conclusions. Um, But just to remove some of the common misunderstandings, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not suicide. Uh, It is not murder. It's not adultery uh, for whatever reasons. Some of those are unforgivable, uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches. So here's my definition. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the willful and lasting rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus to the point of mistaking good for evil. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is willful and lasting rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus to the point of mistaking good for evil. Now, why do I say that? There's a number of reasons. First, uh, it appears that there are different kinds of blasphemy. So, based on verse 28, there's all kinds of blasphemies that will be forgiven. It's only this kind, the slandering of the Holy Spirit, that won't. Second, this is not the first time that the scribes have encountered Jesus. It's not the first time they've heard about who he is. teaching. Uh, they've witnessed his teachings and his miracles and still chosen to reject him. They're settled in their opinions of him. Uh, they won't be changing him anytime soon, it seems. Third, they don't just say that what he's doing is not good. They call it satanic. And I think when you can look at a perfectly moral person... And call good deeds of healing people satanic, uh, that puts you in a different category. And your morals have likely been corrupted, perhaps beyond repair. Fourth, I think this means someone who hates Jesus or worships Satan today can't be saved tomorrow. Why do I say that? Well, because we have examples in the Bible of people who hated Jesus. The Apostle Paul persecuted the church. Uh, he ravaged the church. He gave approval to Stephen's stoning. And he specifically went into houses dragging out uh, men and women because they believed in Christ. It says in Acts 8 that uh, he did this. But then you know what the Lord said of him when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus? Jesus appeared. And he said, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and all the children of Israel. So Jesus is not teaching that he's going to turn away someone who is genuinely repentant. He's not refusing to forgive anyone. In fact, there's not a single person in the Bible who is genuinely repentant and is denied forgiveness. Rather. The kind of sin uh, that Jesus is talking about is the kind that hardens against God so much that in judgment God hands them over to their sin. It's like what we read in Romans one twenty eight, which says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Uh, one preacher, uh, whose name was Kevin DeYoung, uh said that to arrive at this point of rejection of God is much like the stages of standing in a blizzard. Blizzards don't happen here very often. Uh, so just imagine that you lived in Michigan or something for a moment uh, where there are blizzards. And just imagine that you're out in the cold wearing what you're wearing right now. Well, what would happen? Your body would shiver. It would give you signs uh, that you needed a warmer coat that you should probably get out of the snow and go in the house where it's warm, and it would probably get so cold that your skin would begin to hurt. Uh, These are good signs from your body. They're warnings that you should heed. But if you stay out long enough, you begin to become numb as the nerves become so damaged to the point where you may even lose limbs. Well, that's the most dangerous place to be in. If frostbite sets in, There might be permanent damages. Some people numb themselves to the point of spiritual frostbite as well, where they can no longer discern what is right and what is wrong. And I think this can illustrate the kind of serious danger that comes with a lasting rejection of Jesus. So in saying that they have committed an eternal sin, he's not saying that they can never be forgiven. He's saying that their sin continues eternally. Every sin is an eternal one because it's done against an eternal God. Therefore warrants eternal judgment, which is what we all deserve apart from Christ. But Jesus is not in a heart but a heart incapable of repenting. So friend, if you have not repented of your sin, that's turned away from your sin and trusted or relied on Christ, Uh, I would encourage you, don't wait any longer. Don't presume on the Lord's mercy if he hasn't promised you any. Instead, trust in Christ today. One pastor named J.C. Ryle said that there were two thieves crucified next to Jesus. One of them was saved so that none may despair, and one of them was not so that none may presume. Don't presume on the mercy of God. If you're still breathing, though, you can trust in Jesus and receive forgiveness. This warning in Scripture, though, is not just for people who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, In fact, I think God uses passages like this as a means of warning His people of the dangers of sin. The purpose of this text is not to make us feel okay about ourselves, but to remind us of what we have been saved from. Warnings are good things, even if they are scary. These warnings are like signs along a hiking trail that say, Danger, steep cliff, or Beware, cougars. And those might frighten you at first, but they will probably alert you. Uh, They'll put you on an alert and you'll be more prepared. That might make you uncomfortable, but it'll make you watchful. Sin especially can corrupt silently. So beware of private sins that muddle your conscience. If you're struggling with some kind of private sin, especially if it's been going on for a long time, talk to a pastor about it. Sometimes uh, here we've called meaningful membership, uh, something we practice here at FBC, uh, a way of uh, what we've called is an assurance of salvation co-op. In that way, it means that members can kind of affirm one another in their belief of Jesus, and we can provide encouragement uh, together as a group. That's one of, I think, the functions of the local church in the Bible. In John Owen's famous work, The Mortification of Sin, he says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And the best way to kill sin is to bring it into the light. So if you're one that's especially prone to guilt, uh, don't fall into the trap of taking guilt in your sins so seriously that you forget to take the gospel seriously. Jesus preached freedom of forgiveness for all who trust in him. Well, that's the second view about Jesus, that he's demon-possessed. So far, he's deranged, demon-possessed. The third one is that Jesus is divine. That's one more view represented in this text. And it's held not by Jesus' physical family, but by his spiritual family. Look with me again at verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here Are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' physical family is looking for him. Uh, They can't get to him because of the crowd, so they send word into the crowd. That word makes it to Jesus, and his response is that his true family are not those who are related by blood, but those who do the will of God. And by saying this, he's implying that his spiritual family is his true family. That his relationship to them takes priority over his relationship to his physical family. Now, this doesn't mean that physical family is not important. Uh, don't hear me saying that. Paul clearly instructs Timothy in First Timothy that anyone who doesn't provide for their family is, what he says, is worse than a non-believer. So, yes, family is extremely important even if family doesn't believe in Jesus or agree with you about religion. But you have more in common with others who believe in Christ than you do with family and friends who don't. Being related to a Christian, what we can learn from this at least, is that being related to a Christian doesn't get you into heaven. Growing up in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian or doesn't make your kids Christians. Going to church doesn't doesn't even make you a Christian. At first glance, it seems like everyone around Jesus is under that category of his spiritual family. Uh, but he doesn't just say that everyone around him is. He looks around at them and then he says, of these people, those who do the will of God are my family. Well, what is the will of God? You might be asking. It sounds great in theory, but what does it actually look like? Well, The will of God is belief in His Son. It's taking Jesus seriously. It's trusting in the provision that God made through His Son for the salvation and forgiveness of sinners. It is both turning from sin and running to Jesus, putting faith in Christ. All these things are clear if you read through the entire Gospel of Mark as you learn more about his life and hear more of his teachings. And we get so caught up uh, looking at verses that talk about things like the unforgivable sin that we almost miss the jaw-dropping promise in verse 28 that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. This is the mercy of Christ given to all who are repentant The forgiveness of sins is what can only be accomplished because of the cross. So, brothers and sisters, what can we say about Jesus? Was he deranged? A person who thought of himself as the Lord of the universe? Was he demon-possessed? Able to perform miracles that only appeared to be good? Or was he who he actually said he was? The divine Son of God come to save his people from their sin. Some of you may have noticed the striking similarity of my outline today to a famous argument by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It's one of his most famous books, and uh, it was actually published 70 years ago this year. I can't help but feel like Lewis must have been studying this same passage when he said these words because he mentions that Jesus could be a devil. But let me just read to you what he says, as I find it readily applicable still today. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, we see these perspectives well represented to us, to those who witness Jesus in the flesh. And just as they had to decide, we too must wrestle with the claims of Jesus and decide whether or not we'll shrug him off as a deranged lunatic, as a demon, or the divine Son of God. Which will you choose?